Today on Lasso Lessons, we're going to be discussing Season 1, Episode 8 of Ted Lasso, The Diamond Dogs. I'm Mike Merrill. I'm Kathy Buckman. Kathy, do you want to start the recap? Episodes of Ted Lasso often begin at the start of the day, and this episode is no exception. However, it is uh, pretty comical. We see some classic morning after style scenes. For instance, Sam encounters a hungover Nate who is sleeping in the luggage compartment underneath the bus. You'll remember he got stuck there at the beginning of the last episode, so Sam knows where to look for him when he's missing. We also see Rebecca, who kicks the waiter out of her room, who apparently spent the night with her. And finally, a fully dressed and obviously uncomfortable Ted is sitting in a chair waiting by his bed, which is still occupied by Sassy, Rebecca's friend. Ted's even got his down vest on and his bag over his shoulder. He's ready to go. He's been there for a few hours. And he, of course, tries to joke with her. And this is reminiscent, I think, a little bit of the scene with Michelle in the pub in that it's uncomfortable joking between two people, two intimate people in some sense. But here it's just a whole nother level, like this strange up angle and the lighting's very unflattering. And he's got these kind of frozen mouth movements. It's a whole nother level of discomfort. Yeah, I think Ted's emotional state is still front and center in this episode, much as it has been in recent episodes. Back in the Richmond clubhouse, Ted convenes Nate, Coach Beard, and Higgins And they discuss this casual encounter that he's just had, which he notes is coming hard on the heels of his panic attack and getting divorced. After trying to think of some names for this crew, the group comes up with the Diamond Dogs, rejecting Ted's suggestion, which was the EQ Warriors. Of course, the Diamond Dogs is a reference to David Bowie's song from 1974 from the album of the same name. And the Diamond Dogs in the song are meant to be kind of this prowling band of dangerous punks before there was punk rock, of course. And clearly this name is ironic, which Higgin plays up by howling. Yeah, essentially, they're trying to come up with a name for this group of men who are going to help each other talk about their feelings. So they have to settle on something that sounds a little tough. (laughs) I think that's right. Frustrated by Roy's seeming disinterest, Keely has fallen back in with Jamie. Ted brings Rebecca her morning biscuits, but this time he's also brought chocolate truffles. Clearly feeling gratitude for the support she's shown him. He said she has a coupon for life. Continuing the dog theme, Ted goes on this kind of extend a meta metaphor about a metaphorical St. Bernard with a metaphorical keg around its neck, serving Rebecca in a metaphorical avalanche. And once again, the show is very self-conscious and meta about its use of language to make meaning. And I think this is usually Ted's role is to point out the relationship between the language that we use and the meaning that we make. Rebecca has a favor to ask Ted. She asks him to join her with a meeting that she has planned later in the day with a couple of the team's minority owners who go by the name the Milk Sisters. Which opens up just a limitless parade of puns by Ted. Keely and Roy meet in the press room and Roy explains that he's trying to do things right in these early stages of their relationship. And Keely, feeling a pang of conscience, admits to him that she slept with Jamie largely to get back at Roy for what she perceived to be ghosting her. Roy is upset 
understandably, he approaches Ted for help with his anger and frustration at Keeley. But also what he says is the fact that Jamie is stuck right there in his head. Ted quickly reconvenes the Diamond Dogs. They talk through the situation and their advice as codified by Coach Beard ends up being grow up and get over it. Rebecca and Ted head to the pub to meet the Milk Sisters. Instead, they encounter Rupert with new Rebecca, also known as Bex, and uh, discover the two are newly engaged. And we learn that Bex, with funding from Rupert, has just purchased the share of the club that used to be owned by the Milk Sisters. Back in the clubhouse, Roy finds Keeley and tells her that he's done it. He's over being mad about Jamie. And Keeley stages this encounter in the press room by bouncing around from chair to chair and asking Roy follow-up questions. And it's amusing to see the show take one of its centerpieces, the press conference, invert its formalities and turn it into a personal conversation, especially one that's about inaugurating a romantic relationship. We now cut back to the pub where a joyful Rupert has bought drinks for everyone in the pub, celebrating both his engagement as well as this machination that he seems to be enjoying to get back a piece of ownership of the club. Well, this is our first clear Shakespearean reference for a show that's very much in touch with literary influences. And it's set in England, set in London. I'm surprised we haven't had more of these, but this is the first one that I've seen. Rupert toasts the pub with friends, Richmond's countrymen, our club's nightmares over. And of course, this mimics one of the most famous quotes from Shakespeare, the opening of Mark Antony's speech and Julius Caesar, friends, Romans, countrymen. Mark Antony goes on to say that he doesn't come to praise Caesar, but to bury him. Spoiler alert, it's more complicated than that. But here, Rupert goes on to basically say he's going to sit in the box every week and talk to the press and basically bury Rebecca. Ted clearly picks up on the threat of menace here and challenges Rupert to a game of darts. Only once Rupert accepts the wager does Ted reveal that he's actually left-handed. As the match nears its end, Ted talks about how he's been underestimated his whole life. Yeah, this is a pretty impressive set piece. As he's throwing each dart, it's another point, as it were, in his little speech about uh, how he's been underestimated. And clearly he's talking here about darts, but also about his skills as a coach, as a leader of team. Ted attributes a quotation to Walt Whitman, be curious, not judgmental. While we don't know if Walt Whitman really said this, in fact, he probably didn't, it is pretty consonant with what he stood for. He stood for openness and capaciousness. And he said things like, I contain multitudes. If Shakespeare is the ultimate English literary figure, you can make the case for Whitman being one of the most clearly American poets in outlook and subject matter, just in approach. And it's interesting that Ted is, of course, challenging Rupert in the most seemingly British of sports, right? Darts. And yet he tells us he, in fact, played every weekend with his father from age 10 to 16 in the heartland of America. Another quick side note here, as long as we're doing a lot of little diversions and digressions. Ted reveals that what ended his weekend ritual of darts was the death of his father at Ted's age 16. And as he announces this, the camera does a quick cut to Rebecca looking sad, guilty. This is the guy she's using as a pawn in her game. The one who lost his father at 16. I think the look on her face says a lot. We have been charting 
the ways that Rebecca's plot continues, despite the fact that Ted seems to be successfully getting closer to her. And so I think this reaction shot is really important. As the final dart hits the dartboard, Ted says barbecue sauce and declares himself the victor. The ultimate American condiment. The next day, Rebecca exuberantly tells Higgins that Ted embarrassed the hell out of Rupert. And yet, when Higgins informs her that they have 10,000 open tickets for the next match, she orders him to release the tickets to the visiting fans, despite the fact that Man City fans will clearly buy them up. You might think that Ted's white netting, as he calls it, it might turn her, right? Ted's done this thing, humiliated Rupert, but it does not change the way she thinks about her scheme. In fact, it just sort of plays into it. She's like, oh, wow, great. He even humiliated Rupert. One more dart into the heart of Rupert. It just seems to reinforce her. She's giddy with pleasure at what happened and what she's going to do next. I would say Rebecca's really leaning into the schadenfreude here. Uh, (laughs) In the last episode, Ted very clearly says he's not a big one for schadenfreude. Rebecca certainly is. When Higgins expresses his objection, Rebecca once again points out that Higgins was complicit in covering for Rupert's philandering, clearly something she can't let go of and has not forgiven. This does help us understand, if not fully forgive, the punitive way she treats Higgins. In some ways, she just sees him as an enabler of Rupert's worst traits. She connects him with the old guard. She's keeping around because he's useful and because she can control him and she treats him like a puppet. But we just get a glimmer here that her treatment of Higgins is not completely unmotivated evil. Yeah, I think that's important, too, because Rebecca is clearly a character we're supposed to like and a character that we're supposed to, on some level, root for. And yet she's still the villain. I think this helps us give us a way to understand why this anger is still lingering for her. Higgins, in response, quits his job and storms off. Keeley then enters Rebecca's office and confronts her with evidence that it was Rebecca who had arranged to take the tabloid pictures of her and Ted. As the song Diamond Dogs rises in the background, Keeley insists that either Rebecca come clean with Ted or she'll do it herself. This is clearly a big moment in the plot, but it's also a crux of Keeley's arc. She has long been intimidated by Rebecca but here she stands up to her quite forcefully in defense of Ted, in defense of Roy in some ways, in defense of herself. Clearly she is becoming a diamond dog, right? She is becoming this kind of more assertive force. And she's also in some ways insisting that Rebecca take the advice that she had offered Keely in a previous episode for the children, which is you got to be accountable. You got to go tell Ted or I will. Notice she doesn't just go tell Ted. She goes to Rebecca and says, you have to be accountable here. You've got to tell Ted or I will. Exactly. You made this choice and there's an action you should take that will acknowledge the responsibility that you bear here. So that's the recap of season one, episode eight of Ted Lasso, The Diamond Dogs. And as you mentioned, Ted makes this interesting reference to EQ warriors and he sort of assumes we know what EQ is, but probably makes sense for you to give us a rundown on exactly what EQ is. I think Ted's reference to EQ is essentially the key to this entire episode. I feel like this one has one big major theme, which is building emotional intelligence by talking things through with other people. We see that happen in scene after scene. So what does EQ have to do with it? 
1995, science journalist Daniel Goleman published a best-selling book, and the title of the book was Emotional Intelligence. And the, the concept that really came out of that book that people remember is often called EQ. Think about it this way. If IQ is a measure of your intelligence quotient, we tend to substitute that term for sort of intelligence in general. But that's really actually misleading because it's possible that there are different types of intelligence. And one type of intelligence that the book Emotional Intelligence was trying to argue you could build is emotional intelligence. And therefore, you could increase your EQ or emotional quotient. The basic concept is that you can build and increase your capacity to pay attention to your own emotions and also the emotions of others so that you can name them and understand them. And then you can use this information to guide your thinking and your behavior. And you might get better outcomes if you have more sophistication in your understanding of emotion. Besides Ted's reference to emotional quotient, the EQ warriors, where do we see EQ at play in this episode? So here's where we see it. We see a number of characters get upset and then turn to the people around them and talk it through with them. In this episode, I would say we see two concepts that are featured in Daniel Goleman's book, and we see them playing out in a few different ways. Those concepts are emotional hijacking and cognitive reframing. Emotional hijacking is this experience that I think we can all relate to. If you find yourself having a really strong emotional response to something, and usually I think this is considered a strong negative emotional response, like anger, feeling upset, that response can get so strong that it overwhelms your ability to regulate it. You just get caught up in it. And when people experience this kind of emotional hijacking, they can't think straight. They can't think about anything else besides the thing that has upset them. And they're usually thinking about this thing that's upset them in this very contracted, exaggerated way. So one person I could imagine that you could say was emotionally hijacked is Ted, right? I mean, he has this encounter and on the bus back, he does not talk for five hours, which Coach Beard says is definitely a record by about five hours. Clearly, he's not his normal self. Yeah, I think that's right. I think what we infer from that is that he has been thinking about this encounter he just had with Sassy for five hours straight. So yeah, I think we could call that emotional hijacking. And then who else? The other example of emotional hijacking in this episode happens to Roy. As you recall... Roy has this discussion with Keely where she expresses frustration with him because she feels like he wasn't responsive to her and she's confused about where things stand with them. And they talk through the circumstances and it all makes sense to Keely, though now at this point she has to reveal that she has just slept with Jamie and that she slept with Jamie because she was angry at Roy. When she tells Roy this, he gets really upset. I would say at that moment, he's emotionally hijacked. He goes to this angry place. He can't really think or talk about anything else. And I think he says something along the lines that he just has Jamie Tart in his head. Roy goes into this really emotional place where he's really inside his own head. Keely notices this and she says to him, 
hey, Roy, I effed up. I'm really sorry, but I need you to be okay with this. Come back when you're able to talk about it. You know, she can see that he is not in a place where he is able to talk this through with her. He's having this emotional hijacking kind of experience. What can you do about this? And what do they do about this in the show? When you get emotionally hijacked, that's when the other concept comes in, the concept of cognitive reframing. Obviously, emotional hijacking is pretty profound, but the best way out of it is to try to take a different perspective, to step back, to try to take a different look at things, often taking a more balanced view of the situation that you're in. And obviously, this is hard to do when you're in the grip of this kind of emotional hijacking, but with a little bit of time and help from others, you can reframe the situation in a way that's going to feel better to you because it's really unlikely that they see the situation exactly the same way that you do. And they can probably ask you some interesting questions or offer a perspective on the situation that's different from yours. One of the ways I imagine we can see this working out is through the little group that Ted convenes, the Diamond Dogs that intervenes with both him and with Roy. Yeah, absolutely. These little discussion groups are examples of people attempting cognitive reframing in a dialogue-driven way. In this episode, we see cognitive reframing attempted three times, and twice it's successful, and one time it is unsuccessful. So let's talk about that scene where the diamond dogs are first formed. Coach Beard knows that Ted is upset and he, together with Higgins and Nate, assemble in the office off the training room and allow Ted to talk. And Ted starts talking about what he's thinking about. He feels kind of strange about what he just did, which is understandable. But Higgins says something really helpful to him. He says, you seem intent on going 12 rounds with yourself. Why? What did you do wrong? And it's really this question that changes Ted's perspective on this, because it is hard to say that he did anything wrong at all. Higgins does something interesting here, right? Because unlike we've seen in previous episodes, like episode four, for the children, which was just packed full of advice from everybody to everybody, Higgins doesn't immediately offer Ted advice. He basically tries to get him to re-see what's going on. He gets him to question his own emotional state. You seem intent to go in these 12 rounds. At this point, then, Nate is able to suggest that maybe Ted just needs to cut himself some slack. Ted, feeling really much better, seems to have a different cognitive frame that he can put on the situation that has broken the grip of this emotional hijacking. And it's really at this point that we get a clear lens into the fact that this really is a little illustration of EQ at work. Because in fact, one of the names that Ted volunteers for this little group is to call themselves the EQ Warriors. That name doesn't stick, but you can see why he suggests it. Before they start this group, Ted actually gives Coach Beard a little speech saying he doesn't ever want to talk about it. And when Coach Beard volunteers, do you want to talk about it? He says, of course, and they bring together the group. And that's the comic kind of resistance than acceptance. And there's the more clear resistance of Roy, who initially says no, as he likes to say, he does not want to be part of the group. But then he does come back to them after he has his conversation with Keeley. He is not an enthusiastic participant in the Diamond Dogs experience, but he gives it a try. He says, this is my nightmare. But he then runs through the problem that he's having where he has 
Jamie lodged pretty tightly in his head. He's feeling angry at Keely about the choices that she's made. And he runs it through the Diamond Dogs. They ask him some questions about what were the ground rules of his arrangement with Keely. And based on what Roy answers, they don't think there's something there to be really upset about. And I think this perspective is really helpful for Roy, but it doesn't mean that it automatically changes how he's feeling inside. So there's one more step they have to go, which is Roy says directly, I can't control my feelings. And Ted's response is, well, if you can't control your feelings, then by all means, you should let your feelings control you, which he intends sarcastically, of course. He calls it Chandler binging. And for the 1% of our audience who hasn't watched the entire run of Friends, this is a character who's noted for sarcasm, Chandler Bing. Ted is basically, once again, identifying something for someone, right? We've seen that Ted is good at naming people's emotions. For example, in For the Children, when Rebecca is back in the clubhouse getting things ready for that night's events, he suggests that she is revved up. He is pointing out to Roy that your feelings are controlling you. And this is the very definition of emotional hijacking. Exactly. Sometimes it really helps somebody who's having emotional hijacking to just help them acknowledge, recognize, and name that they are being emotionally hijacked. Because I don't think any of us want to feel like our emotions control us. And after this encounter with the Diamond Dogs, not only does Roy seem less angry and less emotional, but he is able to go back to Keeley and tell her that he's done it. He's figured it out. He's ready to let it go. He's excited about resuming their relationship that is just blossoming. I I think this is somewhat unrealistic. I think the timeline here is particularly unrealistic, but it is a really nice, inspiring example of how somebody might go from being emotionally hijacked to interacting with others in a way that helps them cognitively reframe and then go back to the person they're having conflict with and essentially close the loop. So we've seen two examples of emotional hijacking and two examples of reframing by the Diamond Dogs to help somebody rethink through that hijacking, free themselves of that hijacking and move forward. But you said there's a third example of some sort of intervention. The third example is kind of interesting. There is an attempt made to help somebody cognitively reframe, and it actually does not work. Here's the example I have in mind. As you may recall, Higgins has a moment with Rebecca where it's probably the closest he's come to actually challenging her. Rebecca has made her intention clear to continue with her sabotage of the team and of Ted. And Higgins just has had enough of it. He says to her, you're not going to take away your pain by punishing Rupert, which is wise and definitely true. It's a way she could frame this for herself that might allow her to let go of her need to punish Rupert, but it doesn't work. Rebecca rejects this framing. And I would say she rejects it because she doesn't trust Higgins. Rebecca references some past behavior on Higgins' part where he essentially enabled Rupert in his affairs. And this attempt by Higgins to create some cognitive reframing for Rebecca is not successful. It actually ends up pushing them into a corner where Higgins just can't do it anymore and he ends up quitting. 
The reason Higgins seems to be able to do this is because he has been doing the Diamond Dogs interventions. He learned something from them, and now he's going to try to apply it up in his professional life. That sounds right to me. He has seen the Diamond Dogs cognitive reframing work, and the person who seems to need it the most right now is Rebecca, but she's not ready. There's a lot in Daniel Goldman's emotional intelligence. There's a lot in EQ. I'm sure we will come back to this well again. For now, I think this notion of recognizing when you are emotionally hijacked and trying to cognitively reframe to sort of break the spell that emotional hijacking has upon you, I think we can see that play out here. So that's great. Another theme I think we see is curiosity, right? The entire kind of final third of the show is all centered around this starts game. We talked about it, how Rupert has shown no curiosity, no real interest in Ted. Ted points out that Rupert hasn't shown curiosity to him, just as people all his life haven't shown curiosity in him. Rupert can't believe that it's possible that Ted knows how to play darts. He will, have, of course, not notice that Ted's throwing with his wrong hand. But the real question is, did we notice that Ted was throwing with his wrong hand? I'm always very alert to left-handed people in the world. I'm not sure why, but I had definitely noticed that Ted and presumably Jason Sudeikis is left-handed. And I saw this in the episode where Ted is signing the divorce papers and I just kind of filed it away. I definitely noticed that Ted was throwing those darts with his right hand. And that made me feel like uh, there's a little bit of a grift going on here. Curiosity about other people in many ways, it is a form of emotional intelligence, but it is really just a very important thing for a leader to have. And it is clearly something that Ted has in abundance. He focuses on people. He wants to understand them. He wants to know something about them. Ted decides he's going to help Rebecca out by manipulating Rupert, who he knows to be a particularly incurious person, into challenging him at a game that he's actually rather good at. Close to the end of the darts game, when Ted is poised to make his big surprising comeback, he gives this speech. The, the speech is essentially about if you're not curious, oftentimes what that means is you are judgmental. You have an idea of somebody, often a judgmental idea about their capacity or their value, and you have no way of shifting that concept of them because you're not capable of learning any new information about that person. And Ted's speech, then from there, I feel like it goes into the idea of questions being so important for curiosity. All the questions that Rupert hasn't asked Ted about whether he knows how to play darts, whether he's any good at it. I think we can extrapolate it out there a lesson for all of us, which is if you find yourself being really certain about a topic and particularly really certain about a person, it's possible there's something you're overlooking and it never hurts to stop and ask some questions. You mentioned Ted's interest in other people, his curiosity about other people. In this scene, he identifies the three bar patrons who are always giving him a hard time through the screen as they're watching and even in person as he walks through Richmond. Ted shows interest in his trio of critics. Baz, Jeremy, and Paul, not only does he show interest in what they have to say, but he actually calls them out by names and thanks them, showing, hey, I'm interested in your critique. I also know your names. And this impresses Paul, who turns to his friends and says, oh, pretty cool. Premier League gaffer knows our names. So even these, quote unquote, lowly fans, these critics of his, he's interested in. 
it really is a powerful feeling for people to feel like a leader notices them and sees them. And that's the experience that Ted is giving to these three fellows in the pub. And it's the experience that Rupert apparently denies people. He's a powerful figure and he is unlikely to notice you unless perhaps you are an attractive young female. So this is where the contrast between Rupert and Ted starts to really take shape. Just as maybe we didn't notice that he was left-handed, as he's saying, oh, it ended when I was 16 when my father died. And again, we have the shot of Rebecca reminding us of her kind of treachery towards Ted. And also answers a question that maybe we forgot to ask ourselves. Why is Ted so interested in relationships? Why is Ted so interested in this kind of John Woodian notion of making these young men better? Why is he less concerned with winning? I think maybe some of the answers here. He lost his father at a relatively young age as he was becoming a young man himself. And we can already start creating a little narrative there about, oh, maybe, again, we want to be careful about jumping to conclusions. Maybe he felt a little bit at sea having lost his father. Maybe he was looking for somebody who would be concerned with helping him become the best person he could be. And this helps us understand too, some of the particulars. For example, why was he able to get through to Roy, this pillar of rage, as I like to call him? Why was he able to get the domino to fall in his heart? How did he know how to motivate Roy? How was he so good at that when it seemed so impossible? Well, maybe there was a time in his life where he was angry too. And like Roy, he had lost a parent at a young age and he felt some of the same trauma and anger that Roy feels. Possible? It's possible. I think that's really interesting. And you're right. That is really the central question of this show in a lot of ways, if you're looking at it the way we are, which is how did Ted get to be Ted? And where did this sort of orientation to life come from? And that echo in his life story and in Roy's life story of losing a father at a relatively young age, I think that's meaningful. And again, we didn't even think to ask, you know, what is it about Ted? What is it about his history, his story that has led him to this point where he takes his very strong, what he would see as a moral or ethical stance, even in the face of people berating him on the street, in the face of losing and being relegated in the face of disappointing his boss, who he doesn't know is being treacherous to him. What makes him so determined to follow this particular line? Well, I think we have at least a hint of what that might be here. And we forgot to ask. Yeah, sadly, the one thing that Ted doesn't seem sufficiently curious in is what is relegation and why does it matter? <laughs> so <laughs> he's got some curiosity issues of his own. And I think we're going to see how others deal with that lack of curiosity, especially Coach Beard. It's going to become a kind of strong advocate for Ted rethinking some of this stance and maybe being a little bit more knowledgeable about the sport he's leading people in. That's season one, episode eight of Ted Lasso, The Diamond Dogs. Coming up is season one, episode nine, All Apologies. <laughs>